uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. Hi, I'm Marty Nemco. I have become addicted to writing short, short stories. I've now written over 500. They're in three books. One's called Soloists, Stories of Introverts and Outsiders Facing a Dilemma, and my most recent pair of companion volumes, Light, those are stories about the light side of life, a brighter side, and dark stories about the darker side. Well, I decided to um, read you a series of, of those stories that I picked up, maybe about 10 of them, they're two or three minutes long, that are about work, which is something I'm uh, very focused on as a career counselor. Anyway, this uh, first story is called A Coffee Tree Grows in Brooklyn. I thought, who the hell could be calling me at three in the morning? It was the police. A thief working graveyard ship broke your store window. You need to come and turn off the alarm. I raced to my store, coffee talk, and went limp. Three 50-pound bags of coffee, my so carefully selected best beans in the world, stolen. I thought, maybe it's a blessing. I needed a final push to take a break. The crime the noise, the traffic, customers running out without paying, cars outside blasting music over the soft music I play in the cafe to create an island of sanity in crazy Brooklyn. But where should I go? Trying to be practical, I thought about visiting one of my suppliers. It would be tax deductible. Ethiopia? It's one of the world's poorest countries. Nah. Peru? Near the equator. Nope. Hawaii. This guy named Kai has a tiny farm in an area of Hawaii I'd never heard of, Kau. I called Kai and asked how he'd feel about a visitor. He couldn't have shown more, well, aloha. So off I went. And even the baby, two rows away, crying nonstop, especially on landing, didn't dampen my excitement. From Hilo Airport, it was a 90-minute drive along the coast passing not just waves rolling onto Black Sand Beach, but volcanoes and tropical plants. It definitely was in Brooklyn, and I was glad. When I arrived at Kai's Ka'u coffee farm, it was smaller even than I expected, maybe the size of a football field. Kai must have heard my car pull up, because with his mane of long black hair, in contrast with my bald brown fringe, he strode from the coffee field to greet me. Aloha continued. It was hard to know what to say, so after I said aloha, that must have sounded like cultural appropriation or patronizing or just plain stupid, I just smiled and handed him the care package I had brought, Brooklyn goodies that go with coffee, cheese danish, chocolate babka, and rugelach. Those are croissant dough with chocolate chips. Kai invited me into his little cafe next to the farm, and we bonded quickly. He said, and he seemed sincere, that he loved all three of my pastries, especially the Ruggalach. And I gushed truthfully that his coffee, with a weird name, Bourbon Yellow, was the best I had ever tasted. I told him what happened to my store and about Brooklyn's crime and noise. He explained that he used to work in downtown Honolulu, but the crime and the noise got to him too, far from the idyllic marketing PR, more bonding. Kai had long wanted to be a farmer, learned that the Ka'u district had perfect soil for coffee, but was little known, so he could afford a small plot. 
Another bond was unexpected. He said he was getting a little bored with farming. That helped me realize that after 10 years running Coffee Talk, I was kind of bored with it too. So we agreed to trade places for a month. He taught me what I needed to know and I taught him what he needed. No, it didn't work out perfectly. I had to be on Zoom with him nearly daily to keep the coffee trees from dying. And he had to be on Zoom with me to learn how to pay bills, make better cappuccino, and yeah, deal with difficult customers. After the month, Kai returned to his farm and I frankly was relieved. I'm better suited to a cafe in Brooklyn than a coffee farm in Kau. And Kai said he missed the quiet of his farm, but has now decided to hire help. As we said goodbye, he asked if I'd sell him shipments of Ruggelach for his cafe. I said, as long as you keep selling me yellow bourbon. He smiled and said, and I'd like to give you this sapling of yellow bourbon. When you get home, put it in a good-sized pot in a warm spot, and when winter comes, put it inside in a sunny window over a tray of pebbles to keep the humidity up, and I'll bet you can grow your own. We laughed at that double entendre, hugged and said goodbye. It's been a year, and I can confirm that indeed, a coffee tree can grow in Brooklyn. In any event, that story is a coffee tree grows in Brooklyn. Uh, this next story is called Grandpa's Beg. Just before Grandpa died, his family around the bed, he whispered his last words, Live simpler. No one said anything, and for good reason. You see, the Lacroix family liked their far from simple life. Despite the San Francisco Bay Area's traffic, crime, and taxes, they liked their minimans, Lexi, and five-star vacations. But then Mr. Lacroix lost his job as a private equity valuator, bye-bye 700k salary. And because of what he was sure was a demographic reason, he couldn't find another job, despite Mrs. Lacroix flogging him after he had become dispirited and couldn't make himself write yet another customized BS-rich version of his resume. Then the bank came calling. Bay Area minimances don't come cheap, and the meter runs 24-7, 365. The Lacroix forestalled by canceling the Coventry Club and gym memberships and, reluctantly, their house cleaner and their gardener. But as the months rolled on, savings from the spending-centric Lacroix dwindled as the bank's dunning letters got meaner. Their home, now in pre-foreclosure, they were no longer able to brush off Grandpa's dying words. So they sold their manse and moved to a small house just outside the town of Spring Valley, Idaho. Even though it came with a half acre, it cost 80% less than they got for their Bay Area house. That gave the Lacroix a good few years to figure out how to make money. But it didn't take that long. They were surprised to find that the town didn't have a cafe nor a bookstore, so they opened a bookstore cafe. Another surprise? Unlike in California, because of Idaho's cold climate, the fruit was crappy. So their son, the precocious Andy, age 12, Googled to learn how to grow great tomatoes in a cool summer climate. Of course, you needed to pick the right varieties, like the taste test winning cherry tomato orange peruche, but there are tricks to add heat. For example, plant the tomatoes along a fence that you paint with white mica fleck and thus heat reflecting paint. That raised the temperature around the tomatoes, five, sometimes 10 degrees. On weekends and after school, Andy sat at a table in front of the cafe, selling the tomatoes to the amazed customers. Speaking of school, Andy liked Spring Valley Middle School better than school in the Bay Area because the work wasn't crazy hard and boring, 
and more important to him. The kids weren't competing on such silliness as who had designer label sneakers and ripped jeans. Mrs. Lacroix started a book club that met weekly at the bookstore cafe and then a writer's group, both of which generated book sales. Amazon be damned. Mr. Lacroix was happier running his bookstore cafe than raping businesses, which too often was helpful in the private equity business. And if there's a heaven, Grandpa is smiling. And uh, that story again is called Grandpa's Beg. Anyway, this story is called, next one is called Fantasy Traffic School. I got stopped by the highway patrol. Do you know how fast you are going? No, sir. 77 and a 65. I'll give you a break. I'll give you a 75 and a 65. I thought you should be nominated for sainthood. But instead, I just asked her, how much will it be? You'll be notified by mail. I put my head down and signed. It came in the mail, all right, $515. Or if I went to traffic school, a mere 380 plus the traffic school's $99 fee. That's almost 500 bucks. But it doesn't go on your record, so my insurance wouldn't go up. I picked Carload of Laughs Traffic School, and I'm glad I did. I didn't think it would be a good choice. I showed up and there were a couple dozen other violators and an instructor who looked like he'd rather have a root canal. He mumbled, okay, six hours and 45 minutes and you'll get your certificate. Let's get started. Your car must be how many feet behind a stopped school bus? An eager beaver raised her hand. 20 feet? The instructor buzzed like a TV quiz show <coughs> and said, far enough that you can't hear the kids farting. Just kidding. You're right, 20 feet. How does a cop know you've run a stop sign? We were quick learners from the eager beaver's experience, and none of us raised our hand, and he said, you've run a stop sign if you jog past it. Only one person even bothered to groan. He said, just kidding. The cop sees if your wheels have completely stopped turning. Why shouldn't you speed? Because you might get caught. 500 bucks ka-chang. Seriously, you know why it's wrong to speed. After 45 minutes of this, he said, let's take our first break. He seemed the most eager to get out of the classroom. After a minute of commiseration with my fellow lawbreakers, I too wanted out of the stuffy room, so I wandered outside. Instead of hanging out with some fellow scholars in the front of the building, I moped to the back. It's fun to see what we're not supposed to see, usually stuff like used oil from a restaurant or broken crockery from a plant store, but this time I struck gold. There was our burnout instructor smoking a joint. Manna from heaven. As Soon as he saw me, he flung away the joint. I sauntered over, picked it up, smelled it to confirm, and said, Hmm, you needed a little something to try to make you funny? He said, Please don't tell anyone. I strutted back into the torture chamber, I mean classroom, where most of my fellow students were, and I told them what I saw. When the instructor returned, he acted like nothing had happened, but I wasn't going to let that happen. I said, so, Mr. Instructor, so you've decided to end our course right now and give us all our certificate of completion. He said, huh? Whereupon I started chanting, weed, 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 cert, 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 weed, 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 cert, cert, cert. And the attendees joined the chorus. The final nail in his coffin was when I said, Now, you don't want me to go to your company and tell them about your stoner break, do you? Like our tickets, it would go on your record, and that would cost more than a hiking in your insurance. From the paper bag on the floor next to his desk, the instructor grabbed the stack of certificates, slammed it on his desk, and swayed out. 
As soon as I got back in my car, I patted my certificate and made a point of, after checking for cops, rolling through a stop sign. My wheels definitely were turning. Ah. Anyway, that story is called Fantasy Traffic School. Next story is called Sam's Last Concert. In the wings, Sam could hear the concertmaster tuning up the orchestra. Damn, my hand is shaking more than usual. It's a bad Parkinson's day. Plus, it's my last concert. I'm nervous. Glad I decided on the Grieg Piano Concerto, but with these hands, nothing is easy. Sam had been a concert pianist his whole life. At age 11, he finished fourth in the Midwest Regional Young Artists Competition, and now, at age 83, had performed 45 concerts, including one with the Kansas City Symphony. He thought, true, that was just in the Kansas City Symphony's summer festival when lots of the A players were on vacation, but still. Somehow, I wish my ex-wife were here. How could she have dumped me? I still wish she were here tonight. Do I play it safe? A lot of note mistakes would make the audience think I stayed at it too long, like those star baseball players who'd rather hit 200 than retire. Or do I go for a home run, a chance at a write-up in the Kansas City Star? Roseman finishes with a flourish. The conductor gave Sam a forced smile, and, stand, and Sam rode, strode on stage. This is it. Deep breaths, deep breaths. Damn, my hands are shaking more. I'm... I'm taking too long. I gotta get out there. Stand up straight. Old men hunch. Stride. Don't shuffle. But Sam could manage only to shuffle on stage. He hung on to the piano with one hand as he bowed his head to the audience. If I tried to bow it from the waist, I could fall. And he sat down at the piano. I've had this moment so many times, but this is different. Sam used his old trick of adjusting the seat up and back down again, not because it needed adjusting, but to buy a little more time to ground himself before the moment of truth. And Sam began and took every reasonable risk he could, and most of the time he won. Yes, his boldness caused a few note mistakes, but only the ignorant or mean-spirited could criticize his exciting performance. It was inspiring at any age, but for an 83-year-old with advanced Parkinson's, it gives me the chills just to tell you about it. And yes, Sam got not just the usual obligatory extended applause, bestowed as much to protest classical music's dying popularity as to acknowledge the performer, but fervent applause, and then, yes, a standing ovation. Not a charity ovation, a heartfelt one. And Sam, who usually was too shy to look at the applauding audience and so would stare at the back wall, soaked in the smiling, standing people. Then he sighed and plodded off stage for what he thought was the last time. Sam shuffled into his dressing room, closed the door, and dropped into a chair. I survived. I didn't embarrass myself. But I can't go to the reception. That's like a retirement party where everyone tries to make light of it being the beginning of the end. My end. There was a knock on the door. Daddy? His daughter opened the door and gushed. You were amazing. You were really amazing. Come on, they're all waiting for you. Sam knew there was no avoiding it, so he trudged downstairs. When he arrived, the chatter morphed into applause. He thought, no one likes long speeches and nothing ungracious. I should be a good boy. But he couldn't resist saying what he really felt. Honestly, I can't stand the thought this will be my last performance. And he teared up. A four-year-old toddled up to him. Do you want to play in my class? And Sam Roseman went on to play more concerts than he had in his entire life in preschools and elementary schools, first just locally, then around the country. He never got paid, indeed had to pay his travel expenses, but didn't begrudge it. 
I can't think of a better way to spend my money than to teach young kids to love classical music and that old people aren't necessarily irrelevant. Anyway, that story is called Sam's Last Concert. This next story is called Just When You Feel Safest. Jen was the smartest one in the room. At most staff meetings, she had the best ideas, often topping other people's. The very unfortunate side effect is that she made others feel less than a no-no in today's workplace. So when a restructuring resulted in three of the team losing their jobs, they couldn't help but think that Jen's showing off contributed. One day, Jen was at her desk, the place she felt most comfortable, and a plastic bomb that had been placed under her keyboard exploded, giving her first-degree burns on her hands. Wrapped in aluminum foil was a note, Remember Psycho? She felt safest in her shower. Until there, she was stabbed to death. Restructure yourself out of a job, or else. The police took the usual report and investigated, of course, interviewing the three laid-off workers, but all had solid alibis. In fact, one of them had hired one of the janitors to do the dirty work. In a week, the case joined the 95% that end up in the cold case file. Two months passed, and Jen, having refused to quit her good job, was relaxed driving home. She had long felt that her car was what she called my island of sanity. The peace was broken when a bomb that had been placed in the seat back pocket exploded, burning and wrenching her back. A foil wrap note said, quit your job or else, and the investigation turned up nothing. A year later in the shower, the shower head exploded, bloodying her face. This time, Jen quit, but despite her being the smartest one in the room, she couldn't land a decent job. During job interviews, she'd be asked, why did you leave your previous job? She wanted to answer honestly, and the interviewer's response would definitely be something like, well, won't this person keep doing it again to you? And Jen remained unemployed for a year and scared for life. Anyway, that story is just when you feel safest. The next story is called Feedback. The usual response was no response. I felt lucky even to get a form letter rejection. There were so many excellent submissions, blah, blah, blah. So I tried submitting to outlets that promised feedback for a fee. I also joined a writer's group. I even spent the $1,995 on a writer's workshop. I got feedback, but wasn't confident it would levitate me over the golden threshold into the land of the published. Some of the feedback felt too global. For example, your chapters are episodic. Episodic is insiders speak for chapters that are insufficiently meshed with each other. Or the feedback felt too granular to me. I wish Doreen's rationale for choosing Tuskegee was fleshed out. Mostly, I didn't agree with the feedback. Worse, I felt that if I incorporated much of it, the work wouldn't be me anymore. It would be me hollowed out or dressed incongruously. Yes, I adopted a few of the suggestions, for example, replacing some adjectives with verbs, balancing action with breathing space, and eliminating extra words so the resulting soup was distilled. But basically, I decided to hell with them. So I self-published my novel before, is the name of the novel, I enjoyed having control over not just its words, but its formatting, and especially its cover, which I made an impressionist hourglass with purple sand. I appreciated that it was available on Amazon one day after I submitted the manuscript. I've sold a grand total of 37 copies, actually six copies. I bought the other 31 to give its presents. But I started on the sequel, during, and then hoped to write after. Anyway, that story is called Feedback. The next story is called 53 and Unhirable. Alan was still competent, although not quite as sharp, 
hardworking or up-to-date as the younger members of the autonomous vehicle team. He knew he was at risk of getting let go and got more concerned when his request to buy a mere $750 piece of software was rejected. He got even more worried when he was excluded from the monthly meetings with higher-ups. And then Alan was laid off and terrified. He was his family's primary source of income. He needed another job, and now. Alan applied to dozens of openings, got three interviews, but no offers. Overqualified, not quite right, and finally, when he was, re was rejected from what he was sure was the perfect job, he phoned the recruiter to ask why. The recruiter was evasive, but Alan pushed, and the recruiter sighed and said, you will keep this confidential. The bosses said we need more BIPOCs. After a week of near catatonia and family pressure to bring home the bacon, Alan felt his choices were welfare or retail. As a lifetime tinkerer, he chose a home improvement chain store at 23 bucks an hour. Although he hated the 80% pay cut, he enjoyed that the other clerks referred difficult customer questions to him. But working retail soon wore thin, and Alan was even revisiting the welfare option when, as he was trudging to the back of the store to take his break, he saw a customer struggling to reach a box of light bulbs from a high shelf. That reminded him of how often customers had that problem, and Alan spent his break and then the next two months of evenings using his programming and tinkering ability to design a battery-operated mini-lift, much safer and more compact than a ladder. He built a prototype, and the chain and other retailers with high shelves were interested if he could produce them in quantity. Alan hired other programmers and engineers to design and manufacture WannaLift. In hiring, he made sure to give fair attention to job candidates of today's so-called wrong demographics. After just a year, Alan and the three other founders never again had to worry about being discriminated against. Anyway, that story is called 53 and Unhirable. Next story is called The Toilet Cleaners Union. The hotel's toilet cleaners agreed to meet in the empty presidential suite. The fiery one seethed. How dare they pay us just $20 an hour and only half our medical benefits? Raise your hand if you'll join me in storming the manager's office. She raised her fist, and then all the other four did, and they marched into the manager's office. The fiery one demanded more money and 100% employer paid health care, whereupon the manager, for the first time, decided to be fully honest with her employees even if it would cost your job. You are lucky to have your job. You have no skills. 20% of the time you don't show up, sometimes without even calling in. Yet you get much higher than minimum wage, plus I pay 50% of your medical benefits. I make a point of praising you and often give you a free gift card, even for a minor thing. I am disappointed in you. They retreated back to the presidential suite. Now what? A quiet one asked. The fiery one roared. We go on a slowdown. We'll clean those fat cats' toilets just once a week. For once in their life, they can smell their own shit. If they don't like it, they can clean their toilet bowl with toilet paper. The other four nodded, one vigorously, the other tentatively, the others tentatively. Days passed, and not one guest complained, perhaps because toilets don't start to smell so quickly, perhaps because they didn't feel it was worth complaining. And that was the first example I've heard of quiet quitting. That story is called The Toilet Cleaners Union. The next story is called A Cop in Bed. It's 7 a.m. and Tommy and Roxanne are still in bed. Roxanne said, what's wrong, honey? Tommy said unconvincingly, I don't know, that can happen even to studs. 
Roxanne protested, but it's been more than a week. Maybe the paperwork is getting to me. Roxanne wasn't convinced. I know that cops are men of action, not paperwork, but could that explain this? Maybe it's because I'm sad I keep getting passed over promotion to detective. I know I'm qualified. Tommy, I know you. There's something else going on. With a groan from his bad back, Tommy sat up and looked at his wife of 11 years. Roxanne, Internal Affairs is investigating me. What did you do? I think I did nothing. It was a domestic. We went in and the guy had a gun pointed down and halfway between his girlfriend and me. I told him to drop it and he didn't. And I saw him start to raise it, so I shot at the wall to scare him. But now he's claiming he was dropping the gun. It's not true. But what got IAD really going is when, and I swear it's not true, he said that I said, nigger, drop the gun. I did not say the N-word. But his girlfriend is backing him up all the way and screaming, that white cop said, drop the fucking gun, nigger. And then he shot at my boyfriend. He shot at my boyfriend. Of course, my partner backed up that I was telling the truth. She's been great. But it's not stopping IAD, and now the media wants to talk with me. Roxanne said, honey, it's seven. It's time to get up. Roxanne, I don't have to get up. They put me on administrative leave. This could cost my job, and I'll never get another one, let alone a promotion. And we're fourth-generation cops. Can you imagine what my father and grandfather will say, and worse, what they'll think? And when the media decides it's had enough to make it sensational, everyone will see it, and I'll lose my friends. Roxanne said, I know you're a good cop, but you have said a couple things to me about African Americans. Are you sure you weren't being racist? Tommy looked at her and cried. Anyway, that's called a cop in bed. Next story is called Big Balls. VJ Patel looked up at the clock, 6.30 p.m. When he first became an engineer, he would have been happy to work for another few hours, but now he sighed and wished he could quit for the night. Actually, he thought about quitting engineering forever. But all those years I invested, India Institute of Technology and in climbing the ladder. What would my friends think? My family? I could hear my grandfather. What? You're going to open a restaurant? Only the lower castes do that. Actually, yes, he thought. Indian food is some of the world's most interesting. And I would bring my engineer's perfection to it. No oily pre-made buffets. In fact, nothing pre-made. Everything to order. And of course, no canned sauces. No canned gulab jamun fresh vegetables, and I'd buy my spices from my friend Vishnu, who imports the best cumin, coriander, clove, cinnamon, turmeric, fenugreek, cardamom, all of it. I'll make the naan right, each piece fresh in the tandoor. To keep prices down, I'll find a location that's good, but just dicey enough that the rent will be okay. And he did all that, and his family ridiculed him. His mother said, I am embarrassed. We all are. You're giving up a directorship at Apogee Software to open that 10 millionth Indian restaurant? Idiot! Vijay's son, Subhaj, was even more vicious. You don't know shit about running a restaurant. You'll piss away your savings and go bust within a year. And then no one's going to hire you. Who's going to want a software engineer who'd quit to open a restaurant and failed at age 51? Vijay did everything he promised himself he would, and discerning customers returned again and again, but there weren't enough of them. Slowly, Vijay's already marginal business shrank. He felt forced to say yes to the ad salesman who suggested he advertise a 10% off coupon. That didn't help, but Vijay said no when to upping it to 25%. I will not give 25% of where I've worked so hard for. 
And that's also what he said to the delivery services, DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats. But now, VJ was bleeding serious money and decided to stop minimizing the problem with his son, who was a marketing manager. Subaj said, finally, thank you, Dad, for coming clean. Let me market your business. I can make it successful. The only thing I ask is you give me three months to do it my way. You don't like the results, you can go back to your way. Vijay felt he had no choice. Subaj sprang into action. He decided the key would be to make the restaurant cool to Gen Zers. Vijay's Indian restaurant? Stodgy. Mumbai Mambo? Better, but Mambo is for old people. Ah, we'll make the Gulab Jamun, those are round dessert balls, huge, and call the restaurant Big Balls. Decor? We can save cheap posters of Gen Z performers, and we can name dishes and drinks after them, like Beyonce Biryani and the Taylor Swift cocktail. It gets you drunk swiftly. We'll bring in live music. I know I can convince Gen Z bands to do it for exposure to their target market. Plus, it's a date magnet. Servers? I'll visit a few malls and hire away good cell phone salesmen, offering them commission on appetizers, drinks, high-priced entrees, and desserts. To help them and myself, I'll have tabletop tents for appetizers, drinks, and desserts. Our plates are stupid. Yeah, they're hand-painted from India, but the rims are narrow. That means you got to put more food on the plate to make it look full enough. I'll steal a lesson from frou-frou restaurants, ultra-wide rim plates, and in white so the contrast with the food's color makes it look like there's more food on the plate. And no more free naan and I'll charge a lot for it. I don't want them filling up on bread. I want them to pay for big ticket, high margin stuff, drinks, appetizers, entrees, and dessert. To further discourage non while saving money, no more making it fresh in the tandoor, store-bought and thrown in the microwave. It took too long for dad to make the dishes to order. So I'm gonna use canned sauces. They're not bad. I'll have the cook put them in black plastic bags. In the dumpster in the back of a frou-frou Italian restaurants, I once saw a bunch of empty cans of canned sauce. I don't want my customers to see that I use canned. But using canned sauce, I'm going to need to get Dad out of the kitchen. He'll be furious. Maybe I can do it if I flatter him by saying he'd be a great maitre d'. Nah, he's the wrong demographic. I'm going to use hot college girls. i got to get him to work the back office. He said he'd give me three months to do it my way. Okay, on to publicity. I'll make funny 30-second videos on TikTok and Insta, like holding up the big balls. Also, organic is hot, so I'll say, we love organic. It doesn't mean it needs to be 100% organic. Maybe just some organic spices will do. I'm not allowed to solicit Yelp on Google or, or Google reviews, but I can get around that. I'll tell the service that whenever a customer praises the restaurant to give a card that I'll print up. One side will have a Gen Z-oriented riddle like, when does one plus one equal three? When you don't, use a condom. On the back, the card will say, we're loved on Yelp and Google. That'll get the point across without our soliciting reviews. I'll need media reviews, so I'll research all the main restaurant reviewers and find their hot button. For example, if I see one who also reviews weed, I'll send them a joint of primo stuff. Not so much that it seems like a bribe, but enough to make them laugh, feel good about me, and come review the restaurant. I am going to use DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats. I'll hire some kid to go to nearby office buildings, go to each office and offer to leave takeout menus with the receptionist or delivery menus. I'll start with moderate prices, but raise them as soon as I can. Not only does the public foolishly assume that higher price means better food, the bigger profit will get me a higher price when I sell the business, which I will do as soon as business starts to level off. VJ fought nearly all of that, the bodlerizing of his ethically crafted restaurant, but Subaj kept reminding him of their deal. 
three months. It didn't happen within three months, but six months later, Subhash got his father to agree to sell big balls to restaurant holding group, Inc., which promised, we'll have the restaurant honor Vijay's legacy while maintaining Subhash's modern approach. But a year later, Restaurant Holdings Group, Inc. gutted Vijay's restaurant to the studs and replaced it with the newest hot restaurant concept. Anyway, that story is called Big Balls. The next story is called It's Not My Job to Make Your Coffee. Martel, I'm swamped. Would you make me coffee? Trying not to sound angry, Martel said, Michael, you know it is not my job to make you coffee. I am your administrative assistant. That means Word Docs, scheduling, and screening your email. It doesn't make me your maid. Never mind. Michael tried to say it evenly, but it came out angry. He thought, you're marginal, Martell. I'd fire you, except it would be so difficult. It's understandable that Martell refused. After all, her mother was a maid, and proud that Martell had gotten Microsoft certified in Word, PowerPoint, and even Excel. Plus, the media had endlessly told Martell that BIPOCs are marginalized. In her mother's words, when you face injustice, you must stand up, if not rise up. It's also understandable that Michael would have liked to fire Martell, especially when HR and other bosses stress collaboration. It doesn't seem like much when he's busy to ask his admin to make him a cup of coffee. Indeed, Michael, despite his master's in computer science from Caltech, sometimes has to do busy work a high school dropout could do. And Michael's views had roots deeper than colleges and media. His father was an engineer who believed in, unless you're sick, no excuses, just get it done. But Martell had had enough. This wasn't the first time Michael asked her to make coffee. Worse, when she made a mistake, he'd often sigh condescendingly. And although she hadn't had a pay increase in 18 months, he turned her down, indeed hinted that she might have to accept a pay cut. She documented all that and filed a grievance with her union which in turn sent it to HR and to the EEOC, demanding a hearing. When Michael saw the complaint, he quit and became a self-employed app developer. He's working on a better approach to matching job seekers with employers. Anyway, that story is called, It's Not My Job to Make You Coffee. The next story is called Norma. Norma graduated from Leviathan University with a major in psychology and $132,000 in student debt. Ironically, she took a job in Leviathan's bursar's office as an accounts receivable clerk. Her job was to send notices to students who were late in paying their student loans and to respond to in-person pleas for forbearance. It pained Norma to see the endless line of graduates and dropouts who couldn't afford to pay. She thought back to when she was in high school and had been seduced by Leviathan's marketing materials that implied that its graduates are likely to get a well-paying job and explicitly blaring that misleading statistic College graduates earn a million dollars more. You could lock college-bound students in a closet for four years and they'd earn more than the pool of non-college-bound. But Norma had to put such thoughts aside. Her job was to get the alumni and dropouts to pay. So she told student after student, I'm sorry. <clears throat> and she emailed letter after letter. Your account is past due. To avoid additional penalties, please remit the balance due within 10 days. But there was a last straw. An alumni begged. I want a job where I can make a difference, but I'm saddled with all this. I'm selling insurance. I'm not cut out for that. I'm cut out for helping people. I'm living with three roommates and still can't afford both my rent and student loan. On impulse, Norma simply zeroed out the student's account and said, your loan is now paid in full. Go make a difference. The student sputtered, but, but, Norma waved her away. Just go. Within an hour, her boss came in. 
Zeus, the computer program, just kicked out a file. Yesterday, this person had a balance of $107,955 and today it's zero. Norma lied. I have no idea. It must be a computer glitch. That bought Norma a little time, but she knew that even if she claimed it was a typing error, she'd be out of a job within a day or even go to jail. So she decided to do as much Robin Hooding as she could in her remaining time. The next person in line was a guy who came to Leviathan on a football scholarship, but after a year was told there were now better players and he lost his scholarship. He told Norma, if Leviathan hadn't given me the scholarship, I would have gone to an inexpensive community college. But now I have a year's worth of credits that may not all transfer, and I've made friends here at Leviathan, so I feel stuck. Is there any way you can spread out the payments? Norma lied again. I just found a technicality that forgives ex-scholarship athletes tuition for four years. Congratulations. At that moment, Norma's boss, who had been hiding with an earshot, burst in along with a cop. Norma, I can't believe you stole from the university, she retorted. Every day, the university steals from its students, selling a defective, exorbitant product. I just established a return policy. Nevertheless, the cop handcuffed Norma and took her away. Norma never felt prouder. That story is called Norma. Next story is called A Burned-Out Teacher. It wasn't the first time that a student got up on a desk and twerked, and it wasn't even as sexual as previous twerks. It was just the last straw. She was sick of teaching a curriculum that only suck-up kids cared about. She was sick of many students forgetting what she had painstakingly taught the day before. She was exhausted from trying to meet the needs of a huge range of students from special ed to gifted, and she was sick of the backtalk. When Rebecca was a student, an act of defiance was chewing gum in class. Now even a twerker doesn't hesitate to sneer. You can't make me, you ain't my mother. Or, you can't touch me, I'll sue. Rebecca had stayed in teaching only because tenure guaranteed her a salary and even a pension for life, but now she was done. After school that day, she strode into the principal's office to quit, but he guilt-tripped into her staying for the rest of the year, and she trudged off the weight back on her back. But Rebecca figured she had nothing to lose, so she replaced the mandated Common Core curriculum, which is replete with pre-algebra, the history of the civil rights movement, and photosynthesis's Krebs cycle with what she called the real-life curriculum. She focused on what middle schoolers care about, friends, parents, money, and yes, sex. No surprise, when a fellow teacher ratted Rebecca out, the principal told her that she had to leave immediately. She asked the union to fight it, but it refused, citing its contract with the school district, agreeing that all teachers would teach the Common Core curriculum in exchange for a hefty pay raise. Rebecca became a self-employed tutor of low-income gifted kids, and although she made much less money and so had to go back to living with her parents, she was happier. That story is called The Burned-Out Teacher. Next story is called Merit. My mother always told me that merit always will trump all. Your father and I immigrated from Japan, and look at us. And for a while, merit did trump all. Although I was a Japanese-American immigrant, I got great grades, and kids liked me. Plus, I got into what they call a highly selective college. Quietly, I was proud of myself. But in the required ethnic studies course, and then in other courses, I was told that my pride need be restrained because I was privileged, not earned privileged, just privileged. I was told that black, Latinx, and Native Americans remained the victims of systemic racism and oppression. I asked one professor, I don't feel like I'm prejudiced. She said, you suffer from unconscious bias. After all, if you're on a dark street and you see an African American and a Japanese American, wouldn't you be more scared of the African American? I murmured, yes, but didn't quite see that as unfair bias, but I was starting to. 
After all, I did get hired as an engineer by a quality company. They paid me well, good benefits, provided training. Very few blacks, Latinx, and Latin Americans did. And so much in the news and entertainment media portrays BIPOCs as victims who triumph only because of superior ability or spunk. Could they be all wrong and, and little me and my parents be right? And when we took the required diversity, equity, and inclusion training, I was feeling so guilty that I cried in the session. The leader then asked me if I'd like to be on the hiring committee. I felt taken up by the cause of social quote, justice and believed that increasing not just equality but equity required giving preference to BIPOC candidates. So whenever I could, I voted for and later championed BIPOC candidates, even when it was a job I wanted. I didn't really stop to think about the more qualified candidates who got rejected, the coworkers who'd be saddled with less able or hardworking employees, or the customers who got a worse product or service. I somehow just thought of it as reparations. But overall, I feel good about giving up some of my privilege, and I look forward to when oppressed people get cash reparations from the taxpayer. I had long been afraid to tell my mother about my evolved views, but one day after work I did, she simply said, you're wrong. America is wrong. Now let's have dinner. In any case, that story is called Merit. Next story is called The Psychiatrist's Last Hour. The patient sobbed. Thank you for understanding how difficult it's been for me since she died. You thought it's been a year, and it's a rabbit. Every time I think about moving forward, I think of carrots, and I'd cry. I understand. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today. Is there anything you want to remember from today's session? I don't know. Dr. Michaels, is it normal to grieve so long? I would have liked to ask, might that be an excuse to keep from looking for a job? But I felt he'd just get defensive. So I said, we all process differently. For homework, is there anything you'd like to try? I should try to get a job, and this time I will. I doubted it. Uh, can you refill my prescription? Uh, it's time to cut down to 10 milligrams. I really need 20. I'm so stressed, Dr. Michaels, please. I was too tired to fight. All right, the last prescription at 20. Oh, thank you, thank you, Dr. Michaels. See you next week. The client strode out. I bowed my head. When I got home, I stared at my front door. My soornate, whom I tried to impress. On opening the door, I got my usual warm welcome from my doggy Tarzan, who leaped not through trees but onto me. When I dropped into my recliner, Tarzan on my lap, I thought, why do I do all this? Killed myself in school and college and med school and residency and work really hard now. I don't feel I'm making much difference. Why have I done it all? So I can live in a nice place? What does it all mean? What does anything mean? Oh, appeal those denials of coverage. Excuse me, Tarzan. I shuffled to my desk. He followed and nestled his head on my foot. While writing to Edna, Tarzan vomited a grass-filled dog parenthood. I blotted, rinsed, repeated, sprayed, washed hands, and returned to begging Edna. But Tarzan vomited again the next day, and so it was off to the vet. The vet said, it's probably nothing. No need for tests? That's not worth the discomfort and expense of an endoscopy. You're a doc, you know. Most times it's a horse, not a zebra. But the next two days, Tarzan kept vomiting, and without the reassuring grass. The vet said, I still think it's nothing, but let's do the endoscopy. All normal, I'm sure Tarzan will be fine. But two more days of vomiting, and I made an appointment with a specialist vet. The first opening was two weeks out. David, there is a lesion here. Somehow the other vet missed it. We should do a whole body scan. 
came back stage four. Thank you, doctor, at least now I know. Back home, I cradled Tarzan. I won't sue the first vet, I've made mistakes too. Fighting my shaking hand, I opened my book safe, pulled out the fentanyl vial, and helped my best friend avoid end-stage cancer's pain. I filled the syringe again, this time completely, put it aside, and wrote, Dear fellow psychiatrists, I worried my way through life, stressed my way through life, to try to become a decent psychiatrist. I traded most pleasure for accomplishments. I do not think it was worth it. It may be that I wasn't a good enough psychiatrist. It seems that many of us don't accomplish enough for all our time, brains, and effort. Too often our drugs, our procedures, are mere palliatives. They're like adding more oil to a smoking car engine. They help only for a while, and the engine still often blows. It's no shame to leave psychiatry. Don't throw away more good time and effort after bad. Even being a good cafe owner will likely bring more pleasure to your customers and employees. Just use your good brain and drive and be kind. Signed, David Michaels. Now I'll put myself at peace. When David didn't show up at work nor answer his page, his boss, the hospital's chief of psychiatry, called the police, which found David in the note. The officer sent it to David's boss, posted it on websites for aspiring psychiatrists. Anyway, that's the last story. These are a series of short, short stories from my various three books. My three books are short, short stories. One's called Soloists, Stories of Introverts and Outsiders Facing a Dilemma. Uh, other is the uh, companion set of short, short story books. One is called Light, Stories About the Brighter Side of Life, and the other is called Dark, Stories About the Darker Side of Life. Anyway, these stories were all about work. As usual, I welcome your thumbs up and accept your thumbs down. I always look forward to your comments and especially like if you hit the share button below. Share on your social media so that my efforts can have broader impact. And I am flattered if you choose to subscribe to my channel. And I certainly would welcome you checking out any of my books on Amazon. I'm Marty Nunko. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemco, his email address is M N E. MKO at Comcast.net. Post production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.